ask you a favor? Please. Touch this case. There is something out there calling me. I'm your host, Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director, and with me today is my faithful friend, the Thunder from Down Under, Dean Laffin. Dean, how are you? How am I after episode five of True Detective? Holy cow. Shit went down, Lisa. It sure did. It sure did. And, you know, we're going to get to that in a second. Before we get to that, though, we have a little housekeeping. I have kind of a fun thing to talk about and then kind of a not fun thing to talk about. The first thing I want to say is uh, I was contacted by a fan of the show who Mm -hmm. I can't say who it was, but you know who I'm talking about, who I do was a a series regular on Fargo who reached out to me. And at first, when I first got the contact, I was like, who the fuck is this really? Like, (laughs) are you fucking with me? Because I I was so blown away. That this person, what well, we were even on their radar, and that they took the time to reach out to say how much they enjoyed our coverage of Fargo. And so, thank you so much, anonymous person who I'm not going to name. We really appreciate there are actually people out there who are listening to us yammer on about every which thing. And so, I really appreciate them taking the time. And that mm-hmm. was so cool. So, thank you. Next thing I want to mention is a True Detective, the series, has a companion podcast that is endorsed by HBO, and it's wonderful. I really recommend people go over and listen to that podcast, and it's hosted by actually an indigenous woman herself, and so she has a lot of insight into what's going on in the show. And this most recent episode, she had on a reporter from a project called Lawless, and it's the, the Anchorage Daily News and ProPublica investigating sexual violence in Alaska and why the situation isn't getting better. And it so happens that I came across the story of Jennifer Kirk. So I'm just going to let you all, if you are intrigued by what I'm talking about, there's a woman who was found dead in Alaska and her case has really not been investigated. It's been ruled a suicide. There are a lot of suspicious circumstances around this death. So Anyway, so I was turned on to the pod to this website from the podcast. And now my other podcast, Real Crime Profile, is actually going to take up this case and cover it. So anyway, mm. I wanted to thank True Detective Companion Podcast for that because it is so important that real people's stories, real victims' voices get heard. I wanted to mention that before we get into the fictionalized world yep. of NS no, Alaska. It, it, it's a good point. And Lisa, it, you know, it raises the topic of the fact that true crime podcasts are such a phenomena in terms of media, but <laughs> because it's true crime, I mean, there are real people behind these stories and, you know, it, it never, it, it's, it's never enough to point out that whilst 
entertainment is not the right word, but whilst it's compelling for us listeners, somebody has died okay. or somebody has been badly injured or usually died. And so, yeah, that can't be overlooked. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pivot into the show. Oh, so the other thing I want to mention, Dean. Okay. There has been a lot of chatter online about this show in a way that I'm just calling such bullshit on, where you'll see a lot of very clickbaity articles saying, critics love True Detective, but 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 the audience hates it. And there's all this just garbage about people complaining about the show's overall quality. Now, I think that is absolutely not a thing. I think there are a few squeaky wheels, a few complaining voices. And if I may opine, it's probably people who are maybe taking their lead from the former showrunner and maybe <laughs> defending him in some weird way and some kind of weird allegiance to the original, the first season, which is so ridiculous and unnecessary because you can enjoy the first season of True Detective and also be enjoying this season. And look, I watch a lot of mystery thrillers. I watch a shit ton of cop shows. And to think that you should be holding season three of True Detective to some unbelievably elevated bar is ridiculous. You know, it's no worse and no better than any other mystery thriller. You know, it's an enjoyable ride if you enjoy the world and the ride. And there's no reason to indict it for any other reasons and hold it. I mean, the kind of criticism that I'm seeing is just so ridiculous. And, mm. you know, there's a lot more social media and engagement now than there was in season one. And yes. I'm sure if there had been this much engagement in season one, there would be just as many critics and, you know, deconstructing every little moment of the original Rust and what were the original? R Rust and Marty. Rustin Marty, who was an amazing season, an amazing show. Yeah. But there's no reason to compare it and hold this season to some kind of different standard. And I think the nugget of it, Dean, if I'm being really honest, is a little bit misogynistic. I hate to say it, mm. but yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I, I knew what you were the writer-director. Anyway. So I, I've mentioned before, I set up a Facebook group for discussion about this, True Detective. So there's, a, there's an official True Detective page, but you can't post your own post, you can only respond to posts. And so I thought, oh, I'll kick, uh, I'll kick that off. And I got about a hundred and something people in the first sort of few days. And we know oh, that was pretty good. It's now blown up to about 800 mm, people. Nice. So anyway, the point about that was somebody wrote on the page today, I'm finding it really hard to like Jody and Kaylee. Uh, and I'm like, what you mean over Hank or Connolly or Kate right. McKittrick? Like, right. what the fuck? Seriously, you know, the two of the good guys in the show, along yeah, with Peter. I, uh, yeah, that's I don't like, really get how is... you can't. And for the first of all, that's isn't that so typical? Like, why would we even would we even say that we have trouble liking Matthew McConaughey or Woody mm. Nelson? Like, it's not about mm. liking them, it's about this is their story, this is them, and there are some anti-heroines in some ways and I, we could take that sentence apart you know and we could really deep dive what that judgment means but look you're either yeah, into it or not. not and if it's not for anyway. you if you don't like the world you know that's yeah, fine but i've always said it's and I've, i forgive me i know i say this all the time there were only like eight stories in the universe right mm. there are not that many stories so the chances of this 
being some sort of, you know, never before heard of plot twist or revelation. That's just not so what? That's not the point. For me, it's the characters and the relationships and the interpersonal dynamics, which this show is so full of and is so rich. Now, is there some Swiss cheese in here? Yes, there are some holes that I actually was thinking about going, wait a minute. What? You know, oh, and I have to say, like, so normally you're the one that will deconstruct that stuff, but I got a feeling that on this particular episode, it's going to be me more than you that does that. Maybe I'll be wrong. I don't know, but I had, I, I'm enjoying the show, but some of the plot plotting is just like, what? Some of it, there were some just real premise things that came up for me this episode that going, wait a minute. That history doesn't make sense based on what we know, but we'll get to it when we get to it. But that said, there was some real fireworks and dynamics that I really appreciated. But let's start with the, so the first section that we open on the crematorium where Navarro is, you know, what a horrible thing to have to sit through. But I can totally understand why somebody grief stricken would Mm. want to witness the cremation of their loved one. And so Navarro is there for the cremation of Julia. And it's just so heartbreaking in that it's kind of a cold, like, yep, there are her ashes. There's the kiln or whatever it is that it's called. They, that they burn her, her body. And it's just so sad and surreal. It is so surreal to take possession of your loved one's ashes. I really liked the way that the technician, when she handed over the urn, she was like, oh, careful, it's hot. So it was Us. that, you know, it was that fresh. Navarro holds it to her chest. She puts it right in the middle of her chest and just hugs it and closes her eyes. Like, wow. I, I want to do a shout out to the cinematographer for, for this, which is Florian Hofmeister. He was, he, he was the DOP on TAR. And he's yeah. just, I think that he's just done such great work. This whole series are like shooting in the fucking dark, which is not easy, right? So the whole thing's been in the dark, but this little sequence, he's got the camera inside of the kiln. It's, there were some really unusual camera placements that reminded me a lot of Better Call Saul. So you'd often see the camera inside of a microwave or inside of an oven or some weird place giving a really unique perspective and this struck me the same way so yeah i was kind of curious about the tribal significance of i mean i don't know we we don't learn about it and i wish that we had somebody here representing this particular indigenous culture like is it okay to burn her body or is there a different kind there must be a different kind of burial ceremony they don't go into it she doesn't do that you know, I uh, don't, maybe they nah. weren't spiritual. Maybe they weren't that kind of a family. So I was, you know, I was just curious. Yes. That opening sequence was very powerful and it obviously spoke to what Navarro's going through. What I, I love about Kaylee's performance is that from that very first scene on that stick, it sticks with her, right? What mm. she's going through with her sister, it sticks with her and it starts to drive her through the rest of the episode and her just demand from Liz that that this has got to make sense. We have to make sense of this somehow. And this sort of desperation that she gets into, especially later on in the episode of just having to see this through to the end. Mm. And look, uh, this opening scene really worked for me. And to counterpoint that on some of the problems I have with the set, 
is that in the final scene of episode four, we saw Navarro sitting down at the bottom of the dredge. Liz comes up, Navarro's got her ears bleeding, and she's having a very surreal moment. She's in some kind of a fugue state or trance or whatever. And then we get to this, and it's like it never happened. It's like... Well, uh, it's not addressed. It's definitely not addressed on what happened. And I'm wondering why. Yeah, I'm wondering if... But again, Navarro has not been telling Liz about what she's been seeing yes right she didn't she didn't talk about seeing the apparition at the wheeler murder suicide you know she hasn't been talking about all the weird things that she's been encountering i'm wondering about navarro i'm wondering is she okay or not okay is she is she seeing you know ghosts or is she mentally ill like her sister and her mother because she's the one who sees all of the all of the apparitions. We've seen Liz has seen her son Holden, mm-hmm. but but it's Navarro that's seen Annie Kay, the murder victim, the Wheeler murder victim. She's even seen Danvers' son Holden. Mm-hmm. And she's seen Lund with his, you know, like with his handout. I mean that was in real life. But anyway, so she's the one that seems to be kind of experiencing this the most yeah 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 and it's like oh what's going on with that is is she actually seeing these is it so doing her you know her magical realism thing or is it not i don't know you know i have a friend who sees ghosts who has had several instances where she has seen absolutely as clear as day people who aren't there and and I believe her. Like I don't she's not mm. somebody who would like make that up and she's, you know, she's a very sensitive person and she she's very she's hugely empathetic person, you know? Like if you're having a bad day, she kind of takes that on. If you're having a great day, she can take that on too. And so I just feel like there are some people in this world who's who have extra senses, you know? I hate to call it the sixth sense, but even though I'm I mean, I could easily call bullshit on it and go, really? Do you have, did you really see? And I could try to tear it apart. Like, did you really see what you thought you saw? But it's like, there are people who walk in the world who feel like they have, that they have a, a reach into the other side. Look, it, it's, it's going to be interesting. One, another thing that I'm sort of a bit concerned about after this episode is that we've only got one more ep and there's a lot of strings that have got to be pulled together. We haven't even seen Clark. Since the first episode, he was yeah. in the first five minutes, and it's like, where's he gone? What well, for actually all we happened know, to the scientists? For all we know, episode six is going to be a major flashback. You know, who knows? You know, we yeah, don't know. Could um, be. And, and let's and hold just, up. Let's hold up talking yeah. to the very, very end until the end. But we can talk about everything up until that last scene. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, that's fine. All right, let's let's progress linear a little bit if you want. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, Danvers is trying to get the junkie to tell her as much as he can possibly tell her about the caves and to map it all. And he tells her about she's awake and that sort of mantra. And and the, kind of the, the next big thing that happens, I believe, is the, uh, the protest where Leah gets arrested and thrown into the Klinka. Um, yeah. yeah, by mom. Yeah. We- Before that, of course, Layla kicks out Peter. 
which becomes a thing. Which so I don't she, understand that. I this relationship is confusing to me because he's, I know. he's such a good guy. I and know. I'm trying and, to figure out what I mean, she's obviously a busy mom. He's working his ass off too. And it's just does she have this sort of jealousy about his dedication to being a cop? But that's what a cop is supposed to do. Okay, so this now raises another thing, which is that Peter's relationship with Danvers is very beholden. So we've seen time and time again, given a choice between going home to his son or going home to his wife, he's chosen to, you know, do the cop thing, right? To the detriment, like even Christmas Eve. And of course, all this shit in episode five goes down on New Year's Eve, right? Like he he can't do more than what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's sleuthing up all this tax records for, you know, it's almost like a repeat of the relationship between Jodie Foster and and Jack Crawford, her boss. Like she's she was eager to please in you Silence mean in of the Lambs. Of the Lambs. You can yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, because Issa and Jodie have spoken about it, and they were laughing at various scenes where between her and Peter, where it was echoes of, of Silence of the Lambs, but you know, gender reversed. Yeah, I I, I always thought it was kind of odd that he was not willing to draw the line and yeah and just tell Danvers look I can't do it right now anyway well that yeah so he's got this incredible tension not only between he and Layla his wife or his partner but also between he and his father that I mean comes to a head but that you know he'll Mm. do what Danvers says and, and his father seems incredibly jealous of that power that she has over him I just still didn't get why she had to kick him out because he's not being abusive to her he's not a drunk he's not a deadbeat he loves his family he's just a super hard worker in a highly demanding job and you know it was it just felt so unfair and i started mm. to feel like i started to feel this real doom like oh no he's he's, he's yeah. gonna die he's gonna die i mean i totally thought that's where they were going with this mm-hmm. and but, my yeah and anyway. what did you make of so she kicks him out and so he kind of trudges over to his dad's house and and pretends that he's not there, gives him a call to say, hey, dad, can I stay here? But he's observing his dad kind of mooning and singing a, you know, a, a, a moony love song. What did you make of that scene? I'm glad you asked, Lisa, because it turns out that that John Hawkes is actually a talented musician. Mm-hmm. And he wrote that song oh, specifically wow. for the scene. So the lyrics are tuned to the scene. And when he was in Iceland shooting the series, I read an interview with him and said, you know, what was your favorite part about being in Iceland? And he said, oh, the musicians. He goes, anytime I wasn't filming, I was fooling around with musicians. We were doing stuff and having fun and whatever. And he's written songs for virtually every vehicle that he's been in.
the irony there is that at one point in the first one or two episodes, Peter asks him, well, what would you have been if you weren't a cop? And he said, oh, I would have been a musician. And Peter says, oh, did you ever play? And he goes, no, I can't play. But he clearly can. Now, what was also interesting about that was when Peter calls Hank, Hank lies to him and says, I'm working on my truck. But Peter lies to him Mm -hmm. as well and says, oh, yeah, I'm five minutes away when he's sitting on his doorstep and he's listening to that song. You know, it was an interesting moment. And I thought it was also cool the way that the song starts off with like, I'll call it ambient music. So the recording of the music is, you know, sort of in the room with the camera. And then when it cuts to the, to the protest, it, it becomes a soundtrack. And so the volume level changes and it's got a whole different vibe to it. Yeah. Very, very cool. Very cool. Yeah, the relationship is interesting because it's just, it's not quite on the page the way you would expect. Like, they're not at each other's throats all the time, the way that some father-son relationships are depicted. Like, and Hank isn't this drunk. I mean, he's clearly been violent with and can have a short fuse, but it's not like that all the time, right? There, There is like this sort of patheticness about Hank that his son sees. Mm. He can see like the whole painting, the crappy trailer or the crappy yep. house a new color because of the incoming new wife and how his father just can't admit that he's been you know, majorly stood up mm. and catfished. Yeah. So there's this, all these unspoken lies we, and truths. But we get an even bigger sense of Hank's failure because we, I mean, and I noticed this when he first went to the ice rink and he spoke to Kate McKittrick and she said, oh, how's Peter? A bit. I thought there was something. I thought they were fucking. Yeah. Her. I thought that that was what was between yes. them. But there is something. I don't think that's quite no. it. But there was something yeah. that now is. But she that said, they, they "Oh, we really should hire him to teach you know my son how to skate." So it was a financial you know inducement basically to finagle Hank's cooperation. And clearly they've got a history, and now we know that he he was involved in covering up Annie Kay's murder. So from then, but also the fact that, you know, she promised him the job if he did that, and then she couldn't make it happen. So he got screwed over by her, by Kate. He didn't get the job. Danvers came in instead, and he's had his nose out of joint ever since. And then, yeah, you know, he's been catfished, and so he's a bit of a, he's kind of a loser in a way. But, wow, what a performance. Like, what an incredible actor. He's, he just brings such a sadness to it and a a delicacy i don't know a, a delicate yeah a delicate? it is, is a that, different is portrayal right? yeah there's something about it that is fragile not super at yeah, yeah 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 there's something about it that isn't i think in other hands this character would have been just really mean mm. and like a real powder yeah. keg yeah. and just a real asshole to everybody and you could see the how his seething anger and his entitlement like John Hawks isn't really playing it like that. No, not at all. Anyway. Anyway. So we have the protest. And and having listened to the podcast, the True Detective uh, HBO podcast about this and listening to um, Issa Lopez talk about writing this thing. So she had several writing partners on this episode. It was such an important episode. She really had to work it out on how it was all going to play. And one of the things she talks about is putting... Navarro in this situation where the troopers are in charge of dispersing the 
the protest. So she's in the situation where she's got to sort of hurt her own people in a way, right. even though she knows that they've got a case, that she knows that they're on the right side of things, but they're not on the right side of the law or at least on the right side of trespassing. And so that there's that conflict, which is interesting. And I think that Annie Kay's ghost shows up at that exact moment to kind of remind her on whose side she yeah, should be I started on. to have a problem with the way that Navarro was behaving in that it seems kind of a bit random and a bit inconsistent. The way that she sort of bounced from, you know, she, in the first few episodes, she was a force of nature and she was just, you know, she, Liz was quite more fragile and more flawed, but Navarro was just a machine. And over the time, and I'm not, you know, I'm not decrying the fact that she's been through a lot, but she just seems to be a bit random, like the way that she was at the end of Vore, and now she's she's back on the line, and but then she's punching another car. And then she's bouncing Leah out of jail. And then she, at the end, she's sort of taking charge of that. It's just, I don't know, it doesn't hang, it just doesn't hang I, together yeah, for me. I think, I think for me, it doesn't bother me because I feel like she's destabilizing from the death of her sister and how just nothing is going right. So yeah, in the beginning of the series, in episode one, she has no problem punching out a wife-beating yeah. abuser. So yeah, she can go balls to the walls with that. But now when it's getting really personal and there's more inner conflict having to arrest her own people in her own town than it is you know oh, yeah. in, a, in, a, in a fender right. but yeah no i get that okay. i get that one thing sorry it, one thing yeah. this is just a bit random because there's a scene where navarro is in the laundrette and kavik finds her with his buddy jerry or whatever uh, his name was yeah, I think that he's another guy who works at the bar. Yeah. I think he's the, isn't he the one yes, that yes, called Navarro to well, say that her sister is... Something that I suspect is going to happen in episode six, but I don't know, is that, you know, I've been banging on about this Sedna character, right? Who's the goddess of the underworld in, in people. And when Navarro first turns up, when we're introduced to her, she attends the crab processing plant and there's the girl that's been beaten by her asshole, her husband, boyfriend, whatever. She's missing fingers off of her hand. Now, that's part of the law, as I mentioned last week. This Sedna character was taken out by her dad. It's a quite a brutal story. Uh, missing fingers. Who was missing the woman fingers? Who was, uh, the woman who was beaten by... Oh, yeah. okay. Like she's got red hair or something? Yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. Like she's missing the two fingers on her right hand. And so this ties into the Sedna character whose father took her out into an Inuit canoe and threw her overboard. And when she tried to get back on, he cut her fingers with a to Gosh. tomahawk or knife or something. So it's quite a brutal story. She drowns but becomes the goddess of the underworld. Now, that girl, that actress in real life, isn't missing her hands. So they've done that on purpose. And when Kavik was talking about falling through the ice floor and Jerry was saying, you know, we're down into the night country, my grandma told me, blah, blah. That girl walks through the background and just looks at Navarro, but she's got no lines. But why did they do that? It's not for nothing. So 
Interesting. I love those layers. Okay, so here's the part of the where the logic I was like, I must have either missed something or this is a major flaw. So Leah gets arrested, right? She's sitting in the cell mm-hmm. and Peter comes up and he's talking to her and gives her some chips and everything. And they start talking about their past. And I was just realizing, so they know each other all the way from school. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, he used to, baby, he used to, school, to babysit her. Right? Yeah, but how is that possible if we go back and... Danvers was, remember when Connolly says Danvers was sent to Ennis kind of as a punishment or as yeah. a, you're losing your way. So she's sent to Ennis after her son dies and her husband dies. Yeah, but that was seven years ago, you know, like the age of Leah. So she, Leah could have been 10 when they moved there. Okay, so they're sa- we're saying that Danvers met her husband, and he was already married. He already had his. He already had Leah, and then they get together, and then they have their little boy. Yeah, yeah. And then they, uh, and then they die, and there's the car accident, and then Danvers and Leah are sent. No, to I, Ennis? I, I assumed it all happened in Ennis, but as we saw in the flashback, how could it all happen in Ennis? Though they can't. If if it would have all made sense, except Connolly says. They say that Danvers was sent to Ennis after their death. Oh, okay. Sent to this godforsaken place. Where the locations are not hanging together. She can't be both. She can't have, you know, had her baby, had been married, been the stepmom of Leah in this town this whole time. And they've been killed in this drunk driving accident in this town this whole time in Ennis. If she was sent there after. Right. They were killed. Yeah. So so Leah wouldn't have known Peter when they were little. Hmm. He wouldn't have known her because they didn't live in Ennis. Maybe then. it was only a few years because I because uh, in episode two or three he mentioned something about babysitting her, but may, maybe it was yeah, only a, it, maybe both, it was only a year or two or something. I don't know. I don't know. It just didn't hang together. Like. One, one or the other. It's got to be one or the other. Either they've been in Ennis the whole time, and then that's fine. It makes sense. Or they never lived in Ennis until fairly recently. You know? Anyway, yeah. so that... I spent way too much time in this scene trying uh-huh. to figure <laughs> out which one of them was true. Forwards. Yeah. No, yeah. no it didn't. Right. That, that, so, didn't that, that didn't bother me, but it was clear that they... like. At the end of that scene, she's still in the pokey, and after she tells him something like, Liz is not good with people she cares about, and he puts his hand on hers in a very tender, just a little short moment, but he's just going, yeah, you know, so clearly they're, yeah. Yeah, I like that friendship between them, yeah. yeah. It does, it's a friendship. It doesn't have to be anything No, else, that's right. You know, just and just like he can admire Danvers and want to emulate her and be as good a cop as her. And there's nothing sexual about mm-hmm. it. You know, it doesn't have to be this sort of Mrs. Robinson. Yeah. But anyway, okay. Do you have anything else before we get to the scene at the mine where they're, where Connolly's there <laughs> with Kate? No, no. That, that, that scene bothered me. Yeah. Okay. Why did what, it bother tell you? Tell me about it. Why did it bother you? Why did it bother me? Yeah. Why? Okay. Okay. Why did it bother me? Because she is telling a civilian details about her investigation and about a key witness 
that she should never be disclosing. I mean, if she knows that there is this secret that she's discovered about the mine bankrolling Salal and possibly covering up pollution reports or something like that, and she has a witness to something that might be even worse, and she gives up that witness's name to the mind that she clearly doesn't trust anyway. Like, who would do yeah. that? I mean, no law enforcement person would disclose that. No. To, I mean, she might disclose it to her superior in, the, in private, but no, I mean, there's just no way. That was, just seemed like a glaring flaw, not only in the plot, but in this character. This character would never... No, up. she's too stoic. She's too staunch. She wouldn't do that. She wouldn't throw even somebody like Heiss under the bus. Thanks for coming. Uh, yeah, so first of all, uh, we all know that uh, a mess at the protest, that's on troopers running a shitty outfit. Not on EPF, not on me. So, as long as we're here... As long as we're here, shall we? So, this came from our security cameras up north. It's 9.15 this morning during the lead-up to the riot. Why are you and Trooper Navarro in a remote section of Silver Skyland? It's just a question, Liz. It's police business has to do with the Salal investigation. On Silver Sky property. What led you to that location? Well, we got some intel about the area. There's an abandoned cave, and uh, we located an engineer who had some information about uh, Raymond Clark, the missing scientist. Who's the engineer? Otis Heiss. So what does she get out of it? She gets nothing out of it, you know? Similarly, that didn't ring true. And it's like, why didn't she, why couldn't she just tell Kate to get fucked? Which she does later, but she doesn't do it at the start. It's a major blunder. And it just makes her character just seem like, wait a minute, she's supposed to be this amazing mind that's always like ask you're asking the wrong question you're asking the wrong question and she would make such a huge blunder in front of you know yeah it just didn't make any sense and also a heist what he was talking about oh you know i was in a mine there was a collapse and i woke up and it was whatever later and somehow my eyes were frozen and my eardrums were burst and it was like that doesn't seem why why? Fitting, logical. I don't know. I don't know. It's just like, how could you not, how could you not know? And that was, what, 20 something years ago? No, 20, it was 1998. And now the, when she was looking, when Liz was looking at the bodies of the kids in the storage facility, that was 2023. So it was last year. So we're talking 25 years ago. And I'm like, hmm. I don't know. Okay. And then uh, there's a couple other revelations. So Connolly is saying, okay, forensics are back. The scientists died of kind of natural causes, basically. It's just a stroke. They got caught in a snowstorm and that's what did it. And so he's basically just shut. Uh, 
a slab avalanche, a slab avalanche, apparently. Now, by the way, listeners, this uh, recreates something I mentioned in, I think, episode two in the recap. So there was a real incident that happened in Russia back in 1957. It was the Diet Love Pass story where they found, I don't know, 10 or 12 Russians in a similar sort of state uh, as they found the scientists. And some of them were missing eyes, some of them were missing tongues and whatever. But that was the official story that the Russians put out was that they were hit by an avalanche. So that was a little bit of um, Issa taking a little Easter egg there. And I have, I mean, I have, this is going to be very morbid, but I have heard about when you're in an avalanche, what you're supposed to do is swim, like act like you're in water. So you try to swim to the top. So that kind of Uh could explain why it looked like they were drowning, you know, in in the ab- in the ice or in the yep. snow, but it doesn't really explain why they folded their clothes. In no, uh, uh, yeah, no. Look, this was an episode that really raised more questions than it delivered answers. I, I feel that four. I felt that way about four, but I think in retrospect, five is even. Mm-hmm. There are more questions than answers uh, in this one. And again, we've only got one episode now. I hear that the next step is going to be 75 minutes. So not the 60, but 75. But there's so many questions, Lisa. It's like, like, what is the connection? Why has Peter gone to such lengths to draw a connection between Tuttle, Silver Sky, and Sala? Like, it, it, it must well, mean something, And the other right? thing is, like, I but thought that in the mean? beginning of the series, Salal's purpose was not to, like, study the pollution of the town it was they were on some other really other some other mission you know this is sort of yeah pure they were doing pure research on the mysteries of life and dna and all that sort of stuff so we they were i don't know but i mean it it just seems like that would be such an obvious thing for the to find out like it would be so obvious Uh, then the other glaring obvious thing is like from day one i mentioned before but it's like in the first five seconds we're introduced to clark and now he's he hasn't been seen ever since we've had all these other you know well he must uh, be coming because i don't think hire that actor particular actor just as a catcher you don't hire that actor just to show him from the back here's a fan theory Here's a fan theory, Lise. Jumping, sorry, jumping, but here we go. Some people say that is Rose real? Because the only person we ever see seeing her is Navarro, who's seeing visions. Oh, no, hang on. No, no, no. That's no, because she was at the. She was at the. yeah, she pointed the police to the bodies, didn't she? Uh, yeah, yeah, forget, yeah. And I think that, that. I got, and I think that Navarro has away. talked about Rose before to other people. And right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, good try. Nice try. I think we're going to delete that. Yeah. Anyway, okay, the, yeah. So the other bomb that kind of drops <laughs> is that Connolly lets Danvers know that he knows something was amiss with the Wheeler suicide. I don't even think I totally understand, and I've watched the whole episode. I don't think I really understand what happened, but anyway, we'll get to that. So Liz is sort of forced to say, okay, case closed, and there's nothing else that can be done. And she doesn't like it, and she knows that that Navarro's not going to like it, but 
it, it is what it is. It is what it is. And Kate sends Hank out to basically, you know, get rid of the witness. And it's all revealed that he's been involved in it the whole time. I don't know if that's like a huge reveal, but it's just a confirmation that he's yeah been involved that somehow and i felt that this was a big step from him moving from you know uh, uh, okay moving annie's body after she'd been murdered he's doing the right thing by the town by the mine by kate she promised him to get the job and she paid him money as well so he did it but then to go into full jack richer mode and just like assassinating <laughs> Otis. I was like, eh, and he was going to pull the trigger on 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 Liz as well if Peter hadn't. So yeah, well, I just we'll, found that a bit jarring. Yeah, we'll get to that. I think they're trying to build it. See, and this is what I mean, though. There was there hasn't been a build as much as I love John Hawks. There hasn't been that emotional desperation. Like he has nothing to lose, or I don't know something mm. that is compelling him to continue helping her. Like, is she threatening to? I mean, she's in it as deep as he is, Kate is, right? So she can't reveal yeah. that he moved the body without him revealing you. It, she was murdered in your mine or on your mine property and you had me move her. So it's like like she doesn't have anything to really threaten him with. So she has this carrot of him becoming the chief. Yeah, I don't know. There's something missing in this, in his run up to doing what he does. You know, there there's mm. some pressure. There's some desperation that's missing for me i mean it's like you were saying that john hawks is playing this in sort of a, a, a like a loser in a sort of a fragile way I, I i was missing that what pushes a man to do that mm. to go after to hunt down a guy and take his life and possibly fuck your whole career blow your whole life up it seemed just a stretch it was like yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway, and, I mean, and and you know. and on that tone, like, what did you make of the scene where he sees his son at the station, and he tells and he retells the story of how he almost died in the ice? I just didn't know what to make of it because Peter doesn't he doesn't feel any closer to him after hearing that story, no. and I don't know is that a true story or yeah is he making, I had the same is he thought. making himself the hero? Was he negligent and his son almost died and he's like, like what, what was the point of that story, I'm wondering? Yeah, I don't know. It was beautifully acted by, by John. And, but yes, I had the same kind of odd head tilt where I went, did that really happen or are you just making that up? It's, I don't know. And he can't possibly know. I mean, this is, pre this is before the whole showdown at Liz's house. So he doesn't know mm -hmm. that his son is going to have to make a choice, like a very no. life changing life and death choice he doesn't know that yet so why lay this story on him like i saved your life and i didn't give up on you and i cut through the ice for you but Issa knows and we know so maybe it was to you know pull out yank our chain or to pull our heartstrings or and speaking you know, of and speaking of ice in some ways this story serves to tell you what can happen because the very next scene is Navarro going out on the ice to commemorate her sister's ashes, and she nearly falls through the ice as well. Well, this is another scene that I just thought, like, what is she doing? Because she goes out, and Rose is there, and Rose says, do you want me to stay? She goes, no. And then Navarro just seems to stand up and walk 
know, three, four metres, and now all of a sudden she's got to go through the ice. I know. And and then Rose is running back and lay down, and that scene just didn't work for me. I was like, that's that's Just the physics of it didn't work. Like, you could see if she was in some kind of fugue state again and was drawn out. Like, maybe Julia, maybe she saw Julia again and started walking and walking towards you know, a more delicate, fragile part of the ice than I would kind of understand it. But yeah, you're right. It was like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, the physics of it yeah. doesn't make any sense. I know that we're complaining up a storm on some of these things, but I do, I did love the dynamics between people. You know, these really hard scenes between Danvers and Leah, like, you know, as much as she's afraid for her, and that's coming out in this very typical sort of teenager power struggle and trying to get her not to protest, to stay safe, stay quiet, you know? But again, it's like, okay, she's there's Leah out protesting again. This is like the fourth or fifth protest she's been to. It's like, yes, I get it. She's connected to her Inuit, Inupiat heritage, but I just, I wasn't quite sure what that scene served. You know, she ends up in jail, Liz throws her in jail, and then, sorry, yeah, Danvers throws her in jail, and Navarro sort of just basically opens the door and says, come with me. And they both stare at, at Liz and say, screw you. But I, yeah, I just felt that we could have well, spent more time on other things. I, I think that it's starting to build the case within Danvers is that she's got to, the mine has got to go somehow. Mm. That she's got to find a way to take it down, you know, w- with everything that's happening with Leah and the protests and the water and the children that are dying. It's like, and the end, it seems like the death of Annie Kay is the way. Like, if if they can mm. figure out what happened and it's clearly somehow connected to the mine, that maybe she will be able to shut it down or take down the people who are responsible. I'm not sure, but it seems, you know, that I believe, that sort of drive. Yeah. Um, she was very struck when she went to the in the last episode where she went to the house of the woman who had had a stillbirth and she was quite shaken by that. We see her go to the bathroom and she's got to take a moment and compose herself. And then when she's there in that sort of storage facility where they've just got the little timber coffins because they can't bury anybody because the ground's too hard at this point. And so she's clearly you know, connecting to that and she's feeling the pain of losing Holden and losing uh, Jake, her husband, which hopefully we will find out what actually happened there. The other thing, I just find it odd that Navarro keeps flashing back to the Middle East. Yeah, now I know what you were talking about now. I do believe that it's the Middle East that she keeps flashing and not just yeah. an apocalyptic vision of yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, a, a couple of things, a couple of zingers from Liz I thought was good. Your father, I, she says, I told you your father only seems like an idiot. Yeah. She yeah. says to yeah, because yeah. she knows that he's, he's been stalking her laptop, his laptop. And then after, I thought it was funny, after telling Pete for like five fucking episodes, you're not asking the right question. You're not asking the right question. You're not asking the right question. He finally asked the question. Did you and Navarro kill William Wheeler? And she says, you know, you really haven't learned when to shut up and stop asking questions. So he, so we realized that he has figured out based on the, I don't know, the autopsy pictures that what I couldn't follow it, that 
Oh, okay. So what had happened was that Danvers and Navarro shot, so they murdered William Wheeler. And he said to her, how many times did you go out there prior to him dying? And she goes, oh, I don't know, three or four. He went, no, 10. You went out 10 times. So he knew that they were traumatized by that. And what he saw in her high school photograph was that she had a birthmark and it was over her left eyebrow, Mm -hmm. but all the photographs of her beaten had the birthmark over her right eyebrow. So they'd been, the photographs had all been flipped. Wait, not, to not make it look the photos of her beaten or the photos of her after of her autopsy photos. Either or, I don't know. But anyway, the key point was that Navarro and Liz had flipped the photos to make it look like Wheeler, but but they didn't know that he was left-handed. Wait, to make it look like Wheeler beat her, and then they shot him in the right side of his temple as if he was right-handed, but he was left-handed. So from Wait, that, why, this did, doesn't make any sense at all. Why did they flip the photos again? I don't know. Presumably because they wanted to make it look like he was right-handed. But yes, it's a bit of a... Make it look like he's right-handed. When he's left-handed. But, yeah, so then like, why yeah, did they bother them. flipping it if they didn't know which hand he was? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't make sense, but that was the explanation from Peter. I still don't know if they killed him in just cold blood or if he tried to fight them when they came to the call. Like, it's still very unclear, like, how he yeah. came to be dead. I- I'm assuming that they executed him because he'd beaten the girl for the, beaten her to death finally. And they just went, no, this one's not, this is not going to pass. Okay. Uh, that's what Peter and, uh, Connolly and Hank seem to be saying that they executed him. So I have two so. favorite scenes in this whole episode. And the first one, this may be my favorite scene, where we go to Kavik's apartment and he's laying on his side and he's awake mm. and he can hear Navarro coming in and, you know, getting undressed and getting... And the look on his face is just... <laughs> I, I can't tell you how much I love this moment because he's like looking off into the distance. He can hear her coming in and I'm just like thinking he doesn't want to just be a booty call, right? He doesn't yeah. want this to be just this transactional relationships, but he can't send her away either. Mm. So he's caught in this sort of delicious and awful love situation where he can't have her, but he can't send her away. You know, I that, that's just what I was sort of imprinting onto him as I'm watching him listening to her coming in. I just thought it was just a great moment and such a sensitive and vulnerable moment it was it was terrific blocking because the camera is basically stationary and he's he's filling the foreground Mm -hmm. she comes in out of focus and and you can see she's blurred and out of focus but she slides off her leggings or whatever and gets into bed and then hangs her hand over him over his face he grabs her hand and tucks it under his arm and then when she goes i thought Oh, that's really different for her. When Liz calls her, Navarro says to Kavik, oh, you're not going to try and stop me? And he's like, no. But she kisses him and she kisses him really gently and tenderly, whereas everything we've seen before them has just been, you know, wham, right, bam, thank you, right. man, from her side of things. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah it was, that was nice. such a beautiful yeah. look on his face as he kind of takes her hand and holds on to it as long as he can before she pulls away. I just love, I love this love story so much. 
All right, well, let's get to the guts of this episode, and it's the end. We're hang- I love this Who, sequence. Yeah. I was on the at the end of my bed. I was on the bed, edge of my seat in this. I didn't know who was going to die. I knew somebody was going to die. And, you know, listening to the True Detective HBO podcast and listening to Issa talk about really struggling to figure this out and going round and round and round and working with Chris Mundy, who is longtime showrunner, lots and lots of shows under his belt, and working with him to try to find the best way to work this scene out. And that in the end of the day, they had the actors just work it out. Like the actors, like they got them all together. They read yep. the scene over and over again until they figured out a way that the puzzle pieces, that the pennies would really drop the right way. And because you could have a lot of different things. You could have Hank shoot the German and get away. Like basically shoot him and leave him beyond the run and be out there to be reckoned with later. You could have had him kill Pete, you know, for pulling a gun on him. You could have had him mm-hmm. shoot Liz, not kill her, but wound her. And, you know, there's like a lot of different ways that this could go down, but they wanted that sort of big Greek tragedy moment where Peter has to make the ultimate choice. And I was sure yeah. that he was going to die. I was absolutely sure that Pete was going to die, that he was going to get distracted by something Liz said and that Hank was going to realize that he had to kill his son because there was no other way out for him. And he's, he already knows, they all already know too much now. So I did read an interview with John Hawks who said that, yes, you're right, they all got together and they're working out how we're going to do this. So they knew it was a, obviously a really important scene. And he said, when he came in that day, he, he said, what if Liz is unarmed? Like, if she's got a weapon on her, that's not going to work if I try and pull a weapon. So that where she walks around the island bench and she pulls out a service revolver and puts it, mm-hmm. or service weapon, and puts it on the counter, then he comes in and picks it up. So that was something that John came up with right at the last minute. And it's just like, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that, that works. That's really yeah. cool. I, like I mean, that. I just love the tension and where she keeps telling Pete, cause he's got to make the decision, you know, and she yeah, keeps I know, saying, I know. Well, she's, she's just like, think it through. It. And I felt like, you know, she's basically what she's telling him is that your father is not going to let you live through this. You have to think this oh, through okay. because he's going to, he has to get rid of all, there's just, it's gone too far. Right. So I took it to mean that she was saying, don't shoot him, but you're saying, she was I don't saying know you if have she to was shoot. saying you have to shoot him, but I think she was warning him that he was not going to leave. He was not going to let them both leave alive. I mean, there's just no way, you know, and, and for for a variety of reasons. Yeah, he crossed the line. He'd already made the decision. You know, that was that, it. Uh, um, oh, by the way, our man Hawks is apparently best mates with Sam Rockwell. <laughs> oh. So he must know oh, our right. friend Terry Knickerbocker, I bet. Exactly what I thought of. <laughs> All like, makes uh... sense. Well, anyways, that was a really shocking moment. But, you know, I, you know, I just wish the lead up to it and the motivations leading up to it had been a bit crisper than it was mm. because, you know, his, him making the decision that he's going to have to kill Liz, too. Instead of just, you know, realizing, oh, okay, the German's here. I'm just going to follow him. Like, you know what I mean? Like that was, those were a big leaps to take, you know? Yes. But there you go. Hank is dead. And that's a big, big. Hank is is gone. And it was interesting. He was in the same interview that I referenced. He was talking about, so he's actually from Minnesota. 
So he's used to the cold. He said, because the interviewer said, Oh, how did you find working in Iceland? He goes, Iceland's warmer than Minnesota. So that's no big drama. <laughs> but he now lives in Texas. So his blood was, he said, my blood was thinned from living in Texas. It took me a while to adjust, but he got there in the end. But he, when Issa, so Issa sorted him out and he said, I hadn't been working for quite a long time. And I didn't know if I wanted to work again. But really? he went back and all oh, that makes, yeah. breaks my heart. Oh my god. Oh, I know, right? He's like, oh, do I really want to do this? And he he went back and watched her most recent film, Tigers Are Not Afraid, which I still haven't watched. I've been meaning to watch it. I will get to it. And then he said the sealer was, Yeah, okay, we're gonna go to Iceland and shoot for like two months. And he's like, Yeah. Uh-huh. So off they oh, went. Oh, I'm so glad he yeah, he hasn't done anything since twenty twenty one. Crazy. Yeah, not much. Yeah, he did like yeah, he's done some voice acting and a, I think a video game. That's not for lack of people wanting him. Let me tell you that right now. Oh, I'm. I am sure. Yes, all the way back to, you know, three billboards outside Ebbing and Lincoln. The best thing he's ever done. By the way, go watch Inside Amy Schumer. Oh yeah, he does a sketch called 12 Angry Men Inside Amy Schumer. That is the fucking funniest thing. It is played absolutely seriously. It is. It was like, it's like a retelling of 12 Angry Men, that very famous movie, very, very famous. Yeah, 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 yeah. He is, you've never laughed so hard at John Hawks holding a dildo in your life. He holds it like a, like a gavel, like a judge's gavel. It's amazing. Anyway, I highly recommend that. And you know what? I highly recommend this show. I'm having, I just love the relationships. I love where it's set. I love, you know, getting to know these, this community there, you know, I, I, I love everything about the texture of the world. Are there parts of it that are driving me a little crazy that are, you know, that are missteps? Maybe they're missteps. Maybe it'll all make sense. I don't know, but you could say the same about almost every mystery thriller. There's going to be missteps and things. And they're just choices. They're choices. And, you know, everybody has their reasons for making these choices. But anyway, wow, I don't know what's going to happen next, but we... Now, especially go- after this episode, like, holy cow. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I'm just keen to see how, how it all comes together at the end. And we will be back to recap that, will we not, please? We certainly will. But for now, Nira. it is Killer Casting signing off. See ya. There you go. Killer Casting is a concept created by her, Lisa Zambetti. It is produced by me, Dean Laffin. Logo art by my beautiful wife, April Laffin. And our theme music, We Are Beautiful, comes from them. That would be Hollywood Legends, Amphibious Zoo Music. Until next time, Killer Casting out.